here we are. So youth, y'all tell me what y'all talked about this morning. Passover. All right, what about Passover? The origin, which is? Who talked about Passover this morning? <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, first thing we talked about this morning was confirmation. Confirmation is the process in which the church does what? Confirms. Sunday school. Jesus, God, confirm. Yeah, okay. What is confirmation? Was anybody listening to Richard this morning? All right. It's when, yeah, when we, when children become youth. Right, okay. And then today in Sunday school, you should have talked about, yes, you could have talked about the Passover communion. Communion is essentially the celebration of, in essence, of Passover, right? Passover was the holiday that the Jewish people, or the festivity, not actually not festivity, but the holiday that the Jewish people uh, practice when they remembered... Not just slavery in Egypt. The last plague, right? Pharaoh had the previous nine plagues. Pharaoh had refused to let God's people go. So so God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, hey, listen, the last plague is going to be a a killer, literally. It's uh, the firstborn child of every family is going to die unless you have the blood of a lamb over the threshold of the door which will symbolize to the angel of death, this household belongs to the Lord, and he will pass by that door. Any family does not have the blood of the lamb on the threshold, uh, first, firstborn son is going to die, and that's exactly what happened. A uh, lot of Egyptian children died that night in Egypt. Uh, which brings up a, a real interesting theological debate we're not going to dive into, but, you know, for all those people who, who think that anything that bad happens could not be of God, uh, I, I bet the Egyptians will beg to differ throughout eternity, um, as many people lost their firstborn son that night. Anyways, so the Jewish people celebrated that. It was in, around that time that Jesus came in to Jerusalem, right? That's why all the people were there for the festivities. Jesus came in riding on the donkey, the back of a baby donkey, comes in. And, and then he ultimately has what we call the Lord's Supper that night with the disciples. And he breaks the bread and gives them the wine. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood that's just shed for you. Whatever. And, uh, and the disciples, of course, are clueless because they don't understand what's about to happen. And we take it for granted because we know. And so we just and we do it every month. And so... 
So that's what, what they celebrated. But more, it was more than that. It was a celebration of Passover in a way that the Jews really didn't grasp a hold of and couldn't understand. Jesus was saying, listen, in, in, in the olden days, you used the blood of a lamb, which was symbolic of the sacrifice to atone for your sins. And it was the blood of the lamb, the blood of a sacrificial lamb that guarded you from the consequences of the angel of death coming through Egypt that night. And essentially what he's telling the disciples is, listen, I am the blood of the lamb. My body is broken for you. My blood has been shed for you. And he's speaking prophetically. Literally, in a few hours, Jesus is going to be broken and he's going to bleed on our behalf. And he's saying, listen, I am the sacrificial lamb. My blood will cover you. And eventually one day, he doesn't say this there, he says it later, in pro- prophetically to John, he says, listen, later one day you're going to overcome by the blood of the lamb. And the word of your testimony, which the word of our testimony is that I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. I have surrendered to him as Lord. I am no longer myself. I have died to myself. I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, yet it is Christ who lives in me. And that's what the Lord's Supper was about. So today you should have talked about that. Communion. Why practice it? How many of you, I heard that there were some questions asked about communion. Anybody have any questions about what you learned about communion this morning? Cares or concerns? Yeah. Why don't we use real wine? Why don't we use grape juice? Oh, uh, we, could, we could argue that for ages, but the reality of it is, is it doesn't matter what you use. Okay? Because the power is not in the wine, and the power is not in the bread. The power is in the symbolism and the remembrance. Does that make sense? They used wine back then because it was either water or wine. Water, there was no purification system, so it was wine. And uh, that's what they had. You know, it's not like they could throw some coffee on the pot because there was no pot or coffee to be had. Wine was what they used. Today we use grape juice. Um, I don't know. If you go to South America, you're going to use wine. Grape juice doesn't exist in Chile. Catholic Church, you're going to use wine. Hmm? I'll tell you what's really interesting in the Catholic Church, part of their tradition, actually it's more in tradition, it's part of their doctrine and theological belief, is that, at, that the, the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. And so what the Catholic priest, after everyone has been served communion, the Catholic priest, and they do it by intention, meaning he dips the little wafer in the cup and then puts it on your tongue. After that, the Catholic priest cannot let that, he can't dump that wine out because it is the blood of Christ. So he has to consume it. And uh, in South America, in the Catholic Church, had a lot of friends that were Catholics, whatever, every once in a while I'd go to Mass with them. And, and often in the Catholic Mass, the priest will get done, and if they do a communion towards the beginning of the service, he's got that goblet. And if it's a big church, it's a pretty sizable goblet, and he's got to consume all of it. Not just what's in this goblet, but everything that's left in the pitcher. If the goblet doesn't hold enough for the whole church, he has to consume it all before the congregation. And so he'll walk over there in his robes and... (laughs) And sometimes in Chile, you know, by the end of the service, the priest is a little slurring his message, you know. (laughs) Maybe that's why we use grape juice, I don't know. Any other questions, cares, concerns?
Connor. Right. Okay, did y'all hear that? Everybody hear it? Back in the back? Excellent question. I was hoping that would come up. I'm glad it did. Somebody told me you talked about that in class. I cheated. Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when, it, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So Paul issues a stark, staunch warning here. And he says, listen. Uh, it's not something to enter into lightly, right? We need to be remembering Christ. And so the question Connor had was, how come Richard doesn't issue that warning to the church before we take communion? Um, and there's a whole lot of things. And I want to talk about that tonight because uh, it's a great question and it's something we need to think about. The reality of it is, is that denominations across denominations, they practice different things, Okay. Uh, some denominations practice what they call closed communion, which means they take it to a point where they say, listen, we're only going to let our members take communion. 
And the reason being, not because people who are not members of the church can't take communion, but we take on the responsibility of wanting to make sure that we know that those taking communion are actually believers. And so we're only going to allow believers within our congregation that we know our believers are in right standing with the Lord to take communion. It's called closed communion. It's something that a lot, a lot of uh, the more independent Baptist churches practice, some of the more conservative churches. Then you have churches like us that uh, profess that anyone who's a believer may come and uh, come and participate. You don't have to be a member of this church. Then you have uh, other churches that just hand it out to whoever. Uh, and so there's a lot of different practices on how to take communion in the different denominations and different religions. And um, and the question is then, where's the right way? What's the right way to do it? And how should you do it? And particularly, where does the responsibility lie in, in the sin that accompanies those who take communion who aren't prepared for it, right? So let's dissect it. Let's, take, let's break it down a little bit. Um, I want to talk about what it means, what this passage means, what we do here, how Richard does issue a warning, but money don't listen to it, um, and, and so on and so forth. How many of you have really heard teaching or thought about communion before today? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. The reason I ask that question is because the reality of it is, first to answer your question, is that the church does issue a warning. We fail to listen. The reality of it is, is if you were in this church and you went through confirmation in this church, you heard about communion. It was taught to you what it is and how it should be partaken in, and, and especially this church. And I know that because we've used the same curriculum we teach the confirmand since I've been here for six years. So many of you and sitting in this room, I know we're sitting in confirmation when we taught that. So the rat, And many of you did not raise your hand which just is an indicator on how well the church in general has a tendency to pay attention to some things or absorb, absorb some truths and just kind of let them come in one ear, sit around for a week or two, and go out the other. And, and really what that is symbolic of, in a lot of ways, is it's symbolic of the laziness of the church, especially the American church. We are, we are so blessed and privileged to have Bibles on every shelves, to have preachers on every corner, especially in Texas, uh, to have three or four Christian TV channels or channels where there's at least people preaching at least once or twice during the week, Christian radio stations, multiple Christian radio stations in town, Christian authors out the wazoo that we don't really feel the need to take what we learn, absorb it, apply it, and make it part of our active lives, like we do knowing our name, okay? None of you just absolutely, or not absolutely, but none of you just happen to forget your name from time to time. If you do, you've got a problem going on, and you need to go see the doctor. could be on early onset dementia or something. But we don't forget our name. Why? Because it's repeated to us over and over. Why else? It's who we are. We learn early on who we are. Tate, probably within his first year of life, knew his name. And when you said Tate, 
even if he was going to continue doing what he was doing anyways, he would at least stop, turn around, and smile at you like, I'm going to do it anyways, and you go do it. No, you learn your name. And, and, and in some ways, the principles that we learn about the Bible, we should be treating the same way. We don't, that's one reason why I'm not big sticklers, except when it, except when it comes to the M tour. I really don't do things like our Sunday school curriculum gives us a memory verse every week, and I don't know if any of the small groups actually do that, but, but I don't push it on your small group leaders to push it on you to take this memory verse and apply it every week. Why? Because what we do without, although we're great, great intentions to memorize scripture by doing memory verses, more often than not, what happens is we train ourselves to just memorize a verse for a test or memorize something, the same thing as school. We, in this, I was guilty of this until I got into college, or actually until I got married. Uh, I was guilty of learning the material and dedicating it to my short-term memory so that I could take the test, do good on the test, and then as soon as I walked out of that test, it was gone. It's called cramming. Okay? If you cram for a test, then you're not learning the material. You're dedicating it to short-term memory, and within a year or two, it's gone, okay? And, and we do the same, if we're not careful, we do like Bible memorization, stuff like that. We do the same thing, and, and we don't learn it. We cram it, and it just comes in one ear and out the other. And, and in, so in that case, the majority of you sitting in this room have learned about communion. Today was not the first time you'd heard about it. You just didn't pay attention. It's kind of like this inside joke between Cindy and I, because... As the, like the confirmands that are not here tonight, but they'll be here next, next week, they're going to come up. And every year, without exception, one of them, within two months of today, one of them will say this. I'm just so glad I'm at youth because I'm just learning about God. I'm learning stuff that, that I never learned in children's ministry. I mean, I'm just experiencing God like I've never experienced him before. And it'll get back to Cindy, and Cindy will have a good laugh with me about it because it'll be something that she's taught y'all for years and you just forget it and then you get in youth and you're like oh oh this is I'm learning all this new stuff how come the church never taught us this before and then the laugh comes back on me because then four or five years from now one or two of y'all will come back and go let me tell you what I'm learning in this college group I'm in Man, they're teaching me this stuff, you know, and it's just like unbelievable. And it's like I'm learning, and you're so excited to tell me this new truth that you've discovered about God and to educate me on what you're, you're, you're learning about God. And I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, wow, that's awesome. And in my mind I'm going, yeah, we, we taught that at least three times because I have about two years' worth of material, topics that I teach over and over and over and over again to youth, and and some of you, in this year, and out the next, and you'll get to college, and something will happen in your life where it becomes meaningful to you, and you'll be like, oh, new truth, dun, 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 dun. So part of your answer is, the church is warned. How many of you know what Richard says before we actually invite y'all to come up the aisles and take communion when we do communion in this church? Anna. Okay. He has us recite this thing. Okay. Yes. Richard has taken, it's called a prayer of confession. 
He says that every time. Please stand in and recite this prayer confession with me. That's printed on your screens. And usually what he does is he takes a prayer confession that has been prayed for hundreds of years by Christians, and he'll change it just a little bit, tweak it, the language, to match a little bit on what he's talked about that, that this morning. Do what? I'm not going to ask that because I can't say it. All right, say it. Lindsay, y'all, y'all might scoot over just a little bit because she's about to. I'm not, I'm not so interested in that y'all going to recite it because Richard does change it week to week to, to match up with, the script, with his message, which, which thankfully Richard does do that. A lot of Methodist pastors don't. And, and in changing it up, Richard is literally making an effort to, one, make the message come alive to you, two, to make what we are walking into more intentional to you. He's wanting to take a message or the word that God just brought to you via the message. And he's wanting to continue that into communion. And so that we will continue in, in a spirit of prayer to enter into communion in what God is leading us to. Yes. Right. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Okay? Yeah? Right. He goes on and he says, This table is open to anyone who is a part of the, the body of Christ. Anyone who is, in essence, a Christian. Okay? So Richard is not asking everyone to come forward. He's asking the believers in the room to come forward. Okay. So he makes an invitation which at the same time is in essence of itself a limitation to some in the room. Correct? All right. Y'all get that? Any questions there? And then what does he do? Yes. You who do earnestly repent from your sins, do what? And are hardly, heartily, sorry. By thought, word, or deed. All right. So there you go. See, some of you suddenly are starting to remember it. Okay. He does. He not only says that the, the table is just for any Christian in the room, thus saying, essentially saying without saying, if you're not a Christian, just stay there. Then he says, anyone who is coming of a repentant heart and is truthfully sorry or is truthfully in a place of acknowledgement of our sins or whatever 
come to this table. I'll give you this. And this is the Baptist background in me coming forward. I'm not, I, honestly, I don't like the way the Baptists do communion. My brother and I had a blowout one year at Christmas. A blowout. Um, because, because we were, his church practice closed communion, right? And we were there, the whole family was there for Christmas, and we were going for Christmas Eve service. And uh, I don't even know how we got on the subject, but we got on the subject of, of communion and what it meant or whatever. And, uh, and Jason went off on his soapbox on how, how you, you know, we needed to be sure who was taking communion and where they were or whatever. Uh, and so he believed in close communion. And he wanted, I, we're always the theological spark of conversation at our family now since I'm Methodist in my family uh, because they're all Baptists. And so they, uh, you know, it got into this huge ordeal and it was just like, I was just like, you know what? Um, I don't want to argue with you or whatever. No, 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 no. He, he didn't want, the pastor was there and he didn't, he wanted to make sure that his pastor issued this warning that they do closed communion. And so they, he kind of wanted to get in the theological debate because that's what Dietz's do. And I just was done with it. I'm like, whatever, drop it, Jason, because we're not going to agree. Let's agree to disagree, whatever. Um, so then we get to church, and we're sitting back there as a family. And they start coming down the Lord's Supper or whatever with the stuff. And, and Kim and I just passed the plate without taking it. Jason's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not a member of your church. light bulb and Jason was, didn't say a word and we're in the middle of the service and by the time we got home he's like I'm sorry and he said it, my theology just it just clicked to me so whose responsibility is it to make sure that those who come and participate in communion are are at a right place with the Lord do what? Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
right? Okay. Lie with the person. Okay. KJ? Okay. <laughs> yes, you're both correct. The responsibility is both. The responsibility is the churches. It is the pastors. It is the pastor's responsibility to, to make all efforts to, to explain to the body, explain to, not just to the body but to the congregation, because not everyone in the congregation is part of the body of Christ, to explain what it is we're doing and, and, and the, the intentional part of taking communion that lies on each individual and the spiritual responsibility of, of, of partaking communion or not partaking communion. It relies on the church. It is the church's responsibility. It is also the individual's responsibility then as well, understanding the seriousness of the nature of communion to, to enter into communion intentionally with a repentant heart or to abstain. And so the responsibility is both. Yeah. Absolutely. Really. In fact, in fact, I would say that it's, it's not just all right. It's what you should do. I would say if you were at a place where you don't feel like you need to be taking communion, then don't take communion. That being said, we've got to be careful too. Because what kind? What is our? What should our attitude be in taking communion? Intentional seriousness. We should be thinking about what we're doing first. Second, we should be repentant. We should be right. And what does repentant mean? Right, repentance is about desire. It's not just about saying sorry for what I did, but I have a genuine, sincere desire to change and not do that again. Okay, yeah. No, and that's what I'm getting at. There's a difference between being repentant at heart and being void of sin, okay? Because you can, you can be a person that's walking in here who's stumbled with sin this week and, and have, a, have a desire to not do that and take communion. Does that make sense? You don't need to wait till you've lived a perfect week to take communion. Does that make sense? Because that will never happen. Okay, it's about the intent and the desire, not about the action. Does that make sense?
What constitutes worthy of coming to take communion? Nothing. There's nothing you can do that makes you worthy to take communion. Right. Right. Here's where you should avoid communion. Like if you are mad at someone else in the room, if there's a division or a friend or something, and you've got unresolved issues, then, then that's where I would avoid communion. Or if I've come to the place where we're taking communion and I'm like, man, I really should fix things with this person, then I would repent, take communion, and the first thing I would do is go fix things with that person. But in actuality, what we should do is fix things with that person, then come to the table. Does that make sense? We've got unresolved sin stuff. Um, and, and, and so the responsibility lies in both. And in our church, Richard issues that warning, and then, then the responsibility lies on the people, whether they come forward or not. Part of the problem, uh, part of the problem with the way that we do things is that um, because we are a more conservative denomination and a more and we, we a more traditional denomination and we use things like liturgy in our communion taking, uh, what does happen often is that, for example, the warning that issue that Richard issues is not understood. I'm one of those people still after being in the Methodist Church for years. When we start doing the liturgy thing, the communion, I couldn't. I, you know, I've done it for years. Uh, I've led it for years, and I couldn't tell you a word of that liturgy. Because my mind, when we start doing the liturgy, my mind just goes, you know, and I'm off. That's not a knock on liturgy. Because I like, I like doing liturgy. I like sitting there often sometimes praying and thinking, oh, hey, there were people hundreds of years ago that prayed this exact same prayer, and I'm joining with them. That's cool. But but me personally, like when it comes to, to communion, liturgy doesn't help me focus. And, and like when you say heartily and misdoings and, well, well, if I'm someone that's never been raised in the church and doesn't understand the traditional element of the Methodist church, and I walk in, it's not English. In many ways, we're speaking in tongues. <laughs> it could be a problem, yeah. That's a great question. I think you should email him and ask him. Lauren. That's straightforward, right. Right. Not only that, but, but as, as we showed earlier with that little exercise, all of you have learned about communion, very straightforward English, on a sixth grade level and 90% of you did not remember ever hearing it okay and so so could Richard use better English or thing that's more contemporary uh, more blunt something like that sure he could but but the reality is at the same time that that the responsibility also lies in the individual to be listening paying attention that sort of thing so all of that being said how do we as a church then 
go forward making sure that every individual in the room understands what we're doing. How then, you know, should we have the people that are standing here having you walk forward in line? Should we ask, have you repented from your sins? Are you ready? I mean, we're talking about, I'm not, I'm not meaning that jokingly, because we're talking about something very serious. Because if we allow people to come to this table and they're not right standing, we are allowing them to do spiritual harm to themselves and their body. Right? So, so should we have people sitting here asking? How should we do that? One of the things, I, I'll tell you, one of the things I do, you know, one of the Methodist things to do is, this is the body of Christ which is broken for you. This is the blood of Christ which is shed for you, whatever it is. They hand out the bread and the juice or whatever. I never do that. I always say, this bread represents the body of Christ which was broken for you on the cross. This juice represents the blood that was shed for you on the cross. Take in remembrance of Christ and what he's done for you. That's my way of issuing that challenge once again in English, you know. Or when I get to a little kid, this bread represents Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. And when we eat this bread, we're remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. Right, as we're handing out. Should we have the people who are handing out be more specific? What should we do? Pray about it? Yeah. Prayer, Jesus, God, Bible? Yeah. Right, correct. Part of the problem is the original letter was sent to the church in Corinth, and we understand by what's going on in chapter 11 that there's more going on than just the Lord's Supper. Obviously, people were coming there and eating entire meals, like they were trying to get their fill, and some people were left without bread and wine. And so essentially what they had turned it into is a glorified potluck. Okay, and That's the problem going on in the church in Corinth. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you guys are arguing amongst each other. You're coming in here out of, out of the week. You're not even focusing on Christ at all. And you're celebrating this meal, which you're calling, you know, which is supposed to be a celebration of a remembrance of who Christ is. And in that sense, yes, the church today, we're doing it differently than that. We, we tailor a whole service around communion. We, we've got worship time. We've got message. We've got a prayer of confession that is tailored around the message to really make what we talked about today really applicable, and then we're worshiping during it. So, so the focus on a communion Sunday, the first Sunday of every month of this church, the focus all comes to the climax at communion, right? So, yeah, in that sense, in that sense we're different. Here's what I want you to do. If you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 1. Not John, but 1 John after 2 Peter. Ultimately, the reality of it is, is that when we practice communion in the church, there's no way to make, sure, make certain that everyone in the room understands what we're doing unless we want to be here five or six hours. Not only that, but there's no way to really make sure that everyone's heart, even if they say they're repentant, that they're out of the right place. 
what happens to those of us who have sinned this week and not aware uh, that, that we have sinned and have not confessed those sins and are not repentant of those sins because we're not even aware that we've done them? For example, what happens if I've offended someone and I don't even know that I've offended them? But then I've sinned because I've offended them. How am I supposed to come to the table of the Lord, be repentant that I have offended them when I don't even know that I've offended them? Now, the Bible says that it's my fault if I've offended someone. In fact, the Bible says if I'm coming to worship and I'm worshiping and there is someone that I've offended, not someone that's offended me, but I know that I've offended someone, that I am responsible for going. But if I don't know I've offended them, it's still sin. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. If, or starting in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his words have no place in our lives. Particularly verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And then purify us from all unrighteousness. What's interesting about this verse, when you really look at it in the original language, is, is that the, the two things are separate. When you look at the grammat- grammatical structure of this sentence in the Greek, you see that our sins are separate from our unrighteousness. And in essence, when you look at this verse, what it's really talking about is it's saying, listen, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. But God doesn't just stop there. God goes even farther. God goes and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we've confessed our sins and we've been forgiven of our sins, then what what unrighteousness is left inside of us? All those little things that we are not even aware of. Does that make sense? All the little things that we don't even have a clue that we've done this week all these things inside of us that we don't even realize we need to lay down on the altar still. Pride, selfishness, anger that we don't even realize we have going on inside of us. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of God's grace. Paul is saying, listen, we need to be serious when we're taking communion. We need to be serious in that as a body corporately, we need to be focusing on Christ. It's not a time for fellowship. It's not a time to fill our bellies. It's not a time to just celebrate or whatever. One of the things I loved about, or I love about Richard, y'all don't, most people don't know this, Richard doesn't even like people to pray over people on communion. Because he says communion is supposed to be about you and God. It's me getting right with the Lord. It's about me. And it's not about the believers coming together and praying for this, that, and the other. It's about me focusing on God. And I don't really want people touching me, praying for me for my sickness that I've had this week or whatever. I want, it's about me focusing on God. And I really like that stance that he has. But he's not legalistic about it. He's not going to like go around telling people to come up here and pray afterwards. Ah, don't, don't, don't do that. Kiva's totally the opposite. Kiva likes y'all to come and the person that comes, the line to line up behind you and pray. Different ways, different strokes for different folks as the saying goes. The reality of it is, is this though. The church needs to make sure that when we do communion, it is, it is in a Christ-centered environment. That we are all focused on the same thing. 
I think to the extent that is necessary, we do that here. Richard could use clearer English and issuing a warning, but I think the warning is not as important because the entire communion, communion is centered around a service that is focused on submission to Christ, Christ's lordship, our need for confession of sin. The individuals that come to the table, the reality of it is, is there's going to be some that even aren't Christians. Some of these little kids. Some of these people that are just doing it because everyone else is doing it, right? The usher comes in the row and everybody stands up. And if you're in the middle of the row, you don't want to sit there and have everybody climbing over your legs. You know, sometimes it's easier just to go, I don't know what I'm doing. Freakish. For me being Baptist, you never went forward like that. They came to you and passed a little thing. You took a little cup and a little little cracker out of the thing you know we didn't even get Hawaiian bread a little cracker out of the thing you know and and you just sat in your aisle you know and then everybody everybody robotically together went oh do what not until you'd been baptized yeah not until you've been baptized that's right so so where do we coincide who we are and make sure the communion is happening it's in God's grace God's grace is sufficient. When we come and we, we are in a repentant state of mind, and we've, we're confessing our sins to the Lord, he's not only faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but he will go farther than that. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning his blood takes on the weight of our sin. When you think of things that way, communion has much more meaning because communion is not some some structured thing that I need to walk through and, and go through a checklist. Have I confessed all my sins today? You don't want to get that way. That's not what communion was intended for. That's not what Paul's warning was intended for. Communion is one of those things that should, if anything, it should remind us of the grace of God. It reminds me that there is nothing I did to deserve salvation. It reminds me that I desperately need a Savior. Not just the day I got saved, but today and tomorrow I will desperately be in need of a Savior. And it reminds me that Christ came and died on the cross. And it doesn't matter how badly, poorly, whatever you want to call it, how filthy I am in sin when I did the week, the night before. His blood is sufficient to forgive me of all my sin and to cleanse me from even the stuff I don't even know about yet that I need to get rid of in here. It's a remembrance that my sanctification is not my responsibility. It's his Holy Spirit's. That's what I love about communion. What I love about communion is that when I come to the table, or I don't get to come to the table a whole lot, I get to come up here and stand up here, get served by Richard, whatever. It's a, it's a reminder me, to, it's a pause in my wife to just say, man, it really doesn't matter. Because God is God and I'm not. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Because I know what a wretch of a sinner I am. And you don't care. You died for me all the same. Does that make sense?
Christ. If anything, I would say that the passage in Corinthians 11 is really more a warning of us becoming religious with our communion. Does that make sense? In fact, it's a, it's a warning from us doing what we consider doing from reading that warning. Does that make sense? To not be legalistic, to not be ritualistic about taking communion, but that every time we come to the table, we remember who Christ is and what he's done for us in the pure, innocent, simple form of his grace and how desperately we need it. So whatever form or fashion that takes, uh, to me, is okay. I remember going to this camp once where they did Dr. Pepper communion. Um, I've also seen communion done once by this, this clown. Not makeup clown. Like, but... It was like a mime clown, and they, they did this thing with this little straw. I mean, it, it, it was symbolically showing the whole breaking of the body. and It was amazing. It was a cool thing. I've, done, I've, I've been in communions in weird places. I've been in communions in awesome places, and I've been through some communions that weren't so awesome. But ultimately, it's a remembrance of who Christ is and what he's done. And the means by which we go about doing that are less important than who Christ is and what he's done for us. that answer your question a little bit? But I would say, those of you who want to ask Richard about it, ask him. Too scared? Why? Richard's not going to get offended, okay? Honestly, Richard would love it. He really would nothing else go play volleyball with him tomorrow night yeah, well he won't be there tomorrow night he's wearing a boot he's he's out for the season yeah um no ask him richard would love richard's richard's one of those guys that that doesn't take questions like that or confrontation personally he's he would love it probably love to get to talk to you about it if nothing else he'll come into my office and go jeff connor asked me this do you think you could talk to him just kidding. Richard will talk to you. He'll ask it out with you. All right, let me pray for us, and we're going to go eat. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this meal that you've prepared for us. Pray that you bless the hands that prepared it for us. Pray that you bless it with the nourishment of our bodies. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.